0: Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. We're listening to Iggy Pop, The Endless Sea. Historian and best-selling author of What's the Matter with Kansas, Thomas Frank, came to Bloomington on March 24th, promoting his latest attempt at diagnosing our decades-long liberal malaise and ineptitude in the Democratic Party. While he was here, he stopped in to chat with Interchange assistant producer Rob Schoon about his new book. Listen Liberal, which asks the question, whatever happened to the party of the people? With a focus on the metamorphosis of the Democratic Party from New Deal to New Democrats, Frank makes plain what once was a party dedicated to the working class and the Commonwealth is now a political operation dedicated to professional class interests and obsessed with Ivy League expertise. We'll begin tonight with the still astonishing fact of who won the presidency last November and, in turn, who lost, and how the Party of the People found themselves outflanked by right-wing populist rhetoric on issues that the Democratic leadership had quietly abandoned for decades.
1: Oh, baby, what a place to be in the service of the bourgeoisie.
2: Trump is president. (laughs) Yeah. If you were to wake up from a two-year coma and look at the TV and see the news crawl, you would think, what went wrong here? You know, this is insane. Yeah. And there's obviously a lot of factors that go into the election. A lot of things on the Trump side, but another big part
3: of it is that the Democrats lost. And and in this case, lost against the uh The man who is arguably the worst presidential candidate of all time, the least prepared, uh, a man who succeeded in offending uh, group after group of people, a guy who really had no business running for president. And uh, they lost to him, the the, the Clinton faction of the Democratic Party, the most – the best-advised, most best-funded political machine in the world lost to this guy. The most qualified – the presidential <laughs> yes. candidate of all time lost to the least, the qualified, least qualified of all yep. time.
2: Yep. Um, so the subtitle of your new book, Listen Liberal, is Whatever Happened to the Party of the People? Uh, it seems last year the people <laughs> oh, finally just gave up on the party. Yeah,
3: I hadn't thought of that. The Party of the People really got took a shellacking. And, uh, the people deserted the party of the people in droves, um, at least in places like this, in Ohio, and Michigan, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And, and the people that
2: did support the party, um, at least in my kind of short, uh, political consciousness of 12, 15 years, this was the first time where it was palpable to feel like you were stuck with this option.
3: Yeah, it was, you know, there's a lot of, um, unpleasant enlightenment that went on in this last electra- electoral go-round. And one of the things that, that, that really, I think, struck a lot of people and made a lot of people really frustrated was the limitations of this two-party system that we had the most unpopular presidential candidate versus the second most unpopular presidential candidate. That's not a uh, healthy democracy doesn't give you a choice like that. That's, that really sucks. -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, and also the way that, um, uh, I mean, the way the Democratic Party came together to stop Bernie Sanders really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Um Trump by contrast I mean I don't I don't like Trump. Uh I didn't vote for him and and I don't <laughs> I mm-hmm. don't think very highly of him. We'll get into that later but what he did in the Republican party actually seemed kind of like a breath of fresh air, you know, destroying all of these established Republican politicians. That was kind of fun to watch.
2: Mm-hmm. And and he also emphasized um at least rhetoric that was not what you'd normally get from a Republican, uh, well, some yeah, things. I
3: mean, he the way he did it. so I mean, the, the, you know, we're going to look back at this forever after two thousand and sixteen as the year of Trump. Um, because it was, it is so remarkable what he did. And he did it by jettisoning all sorts of traditional Republican views. Um, free markets, or I mean, well, not free markets per se, but free trade. Mm-hmm. He got, just threw that overboard. Um, you know, look, he, he went after big pharma in the election. He's going after them as president. He, um, He, he said, he swore again and again and again that Social Security and Medicare, he would never touch these. Now, I don't know whether to believe, you know, this guy, this guy is, is, is a kind of incredible hypocrite. You know, you get the sense that he would say anything. But what I just said, these were things that he repeated constantly. Uh, you know, the stuff about the trade, trade agreements, uh, the, the stuff about Social Security. He also went after He went after the military-industrial complex. You know, Republicans never do that, Uh, and he did it in an undeniable way. Now that he's president, you know, he (laughs) appointed all these generals, and you know, so I don't know how much that meant, but he did say it.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, And on the other side, you uh, have—you were talking about free trade. NAFTA seems to be something that you know started with Bill Clinton and has ironically come back full circle.
3: Yeah. To be one of the main things that hurt Hillary. Clinton. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, in my, if you ask me, it's the trade issue is what made the difference in this election. And this was for a lot of these, um, working class people who were the swing vote this time around. That is, you know, they are traditionally Democrats and, but they, they resented NAFTA and all the other trade, trade agreements that Bill Clinton got done resented these deeply. And the Democrats, I live in Washington. I live among uh, people who are democrats for a living mm-hmm. and they brush this off they are even more committed to free trade than the republicans are they believe in it even more than the republicans do and uh they you know they uh when confronted by the fact that their own base dislikes what they're doing mm-hmm. they they come up with all of these different ways of not pa- of of why they can ignore that and why that doesn't matter and why these people don't count and why their opinion is wrong i mean constantly and you know Hillary just paid the price for that in in a, a huge way, both because her name is Clinton right. and also – but also because she was secretary of state uh, and had a hand in negotiating the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Obama himself has a lot to answer for. Because he in 08 was one of these guys who campaigned saying he would, uh, renegotiate NAFTA. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been saying this for a long time. Trump isn't the first. Obama did it in 08. He gets into office and then it's like, yeah, I changed my mind. And yes. in fact, goes on to like push the Trans-Pacific Partnership right through the election, right up to election day. It's like, what the hell was he thinking? A lot of the blame for, uh, Hillary's defeat has to go to him doing that and a couple other things things that he did that are just hard to believe. But that's the one that really gets me. Yeah. And on free trade, it's weird. It's – I don't know if it's weird or
2: disappointing or a betrayal. That's something that they aren't going to face a lot of Republican resistance in Congress. You know, Obama was blocked on this and that. Famously, after the first two years, he couldn't get yeah, very much past right. at all.
3: Obstruction, yes. But that's that's something that the – Uh, Republicans are not really against. Like I said, I live in Washington and there is a consensus in Washington on trade issues uh, by which I mean the two parties, uh, the leaders of these two parties pretty much agreed. I mean NAFTA was a Republican – Trade agreement. The Republicans negotiated it, but they couldn't get it passed through Congress back in the nineties. It took Bill Clinton to do that, and mm-hmm. Bill Clinton basically identified himself with it, embraced it wholeheartedly, and made his party into the the party of free trade, and also along the way, the party of Wall Street. But we'll, we'll come to that later. Yeah. But here is the interesting thing. Uh, the democrats never paid the price for that because the republicans were also free trade because the two parties were exactly on the same page on this there was no choice on the matter there's it was complete airtight consensus and this is you know i think trump is kind of a, a what? An ignoramus. Well, yeah. but, but this is, but this is, uh, this shows a, this shows a spark of genius that he knew that this, this was the issue where if he took that consensus away, all of a sudden the Democrats have to answer for this and they're not prepared. Yeah. And they're, you know, like, look at poor Hillary's scramble on this issue. It was devastating. By the way, this would, one of my pet theories, this would ho- only have worked against Hillary. It wouldn't have worked against Bernie. Right. It wouldn't have worked against uh, Joe Biden. It wouldn't have worked against Martin O'Malley, for that matter. You know, None of the other Democrats would have been so badly hurt by this issue. Uh, Trump could only have beaten Hillary. Mm. And by the way, <laughs> Hillary – Trump was the only one – the only Republican running where Hillary had a chance. It, right, was, a, yeah. it was a terrible election. What a <laughs> dreadful choice. Yeah. You know? Um. So
2: let's go into the Clintons, uh, Hillary and Bill. Uh, you talk about Bill Clinton a lot and about things only a Democrat could do, uh, like free trade, all this yeah. middle of the road economic yeah. policy, and uh, and consensus, which seems to be something that has has been branded for not trying to to do anything on the left.
3: Yeah. Well, there was a. a- one of the the quotes that I found in the course of researching "Listen, Liberal," it was really really choice, and it it is the epitaph for the entire Clinton era. And it was a a man, said, Bill Clinton, had a plan for privatizing Social Security, and he 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 would have gotten it done had his last few years not been mired in scandal right. with the Monica Lewinsky affair. <laughs> he would have he would have gotten Social Security, some form of privatization, uh done. And one of his supporters was saying it takes a democrat to undo these you know uh, uh franklin roosevelt programs these new deal programs it takes a democrat and that's kind of that is the whole story of bill clinton that it, it you know reagan when we look back at the, the long history of the conservative turn or neoliberalism or whatever you want to call it, whatever the word is that you want to call it, Reagan is often thought to be the primary villain. He started – Reagan and Thatcher. They started it in the early 80s. But in fact, it was Bill Clinton that got uh, the vast majority of it done. It was the Democrats that got it done. The, the, it's the Democrats that got NAFTA passed, You know, the free trade agreements. Uh, it, it's the Democrats that deregulated Wall Street. I mean Reagan mm. tried. He couldn't do it. Clinton got it done. Right. Uh, it's the Democrats that that ended welfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the Democrats that got the austerity budget, the balanced budget in the nineties. I'm leaving one out. What is it? Oh, the great crime, the great crackdown. You know, mass incarceration. Yeah. That's Bill Clinton did that.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, this is the man has a has a lot to answer for. And by the way, every one of the things I just mentioned, and these were his great achievements as president, according to his biographers, these are the great things he did. A lot of little things that were that were okay. Mm-hmm. These were the big things, the momentous things. Every single one of them was a Republican proposal, uh, and it takes it. It takes a Democrat. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, and and now we have the Republicans trying to pass and being very messy about it. Uh, some sort of whatever they're doing to
3: with health care. Yeah, health care. Well, by the time this airs, that's going to be done, I suppose. But it, it is ironic other, that yeah. it is ironic that uh, when Barack Obama went to get. I don't I don't judge him as harshly as Bill Clinton. I think with Barack Obama you mainly see a failure of nerve, uh failure of imagination, an obsession with consensus. Yes, that, that that's always that's a constant with Washington Democrats. The sort of the species of Democrat we have in Washington, the obsession with consensus. Obama's term was the grand bargain. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, that, I think that that's his main failing. Uh Bill Clinton's were very different, but uh with with the you know, with Obamacare, he basically took a Republican proposal and got it done over the, you know, the Republicans fighting him at every step <laughs> right. with, on their own proposal. Well, it it's the most Republican extraordinary thing, anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Anyhow, and now, and now the Republicans are in the driver's seat. And they're looking around, you know, they're, they're, they've been promising to overturn Obamacare and talking about how awful it is all these years. Right. And they, they, they sort of like it now. They look at it, they're like, huh, well, this is kind of a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> this feels kind of Republican. Yeah. Yeah.
1: As soon as you're born,
0: they make you feel small. It's time for a break. This is Doug Storm. We're listening to Working Class Hero by John Lennon. More with assistant producer Rob Schoon and Thomas Frank, author of Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People in a Moment. A working class hero
1: is something to be A working class hero is something to be They hurt you at home And they hit you at school They hate you if you're clever And they despise a fool Till you're so f*** crazy You can't follow their rules A working class hero Is something to be A working class hero is something to be.
0: A working class hero is something to be. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. Tonight, our assistant producer Rob Schoon is asking Thomas Frank, best selling author of What's the Matter with Kansas? What's the Matter with the Democratic Party? In his latest book, A Spiritual Sequel to Kansas, Frank outlines the Democratic Party's shift. Starting in 1968, away from labor and towards the interests of one predominant group, the emerging professional class of the college educated expert. And how that decades long shift in the left, the product of reforms and movements under various names like neoliberalism, the New Democrats, and Atari liberals, contributed to the historic levels of inequality we see today. This room at the top, they are telling you. Well, still.
1: I
2: wanted to get into the kind of the the grand governing strategy or philosophy or maybe just the worldview so in the run-up to the election we did five shows on different aspects of neoliberalism yeah i think because everybody thought clinton was going to be the president and here's us describing what we're going to be under for the next four years yeah uh didn't turn out that way um but I noticed that you only mentioned
3: neoliberalism twice uh, in your in the book. Yeah, I don't, I don't. And then I was talking about something very specific. I, right. was, I was not talking about the, the term the way you're using it. I um. You don't want to use it as, as a. Broad I Well, no, that's a British. It's a British. Uh, it's a British phrase. The problem is we don't have a real term in America for the great like uh, shift to the right that starts in the late seventies mm-hmm. and that is still going strong today. We don't have a term. I mean, there's people have come up with different ones. The age of Reagan. Someone called it the age of greed. Uh, You know, the the conservative turn. We don't really have a. Phrase for it And neoliberalism is a good phrase Unfortunately it's a British phrase uh, Because by, the, by liberal they mean Gladstone 19, yeah. 19th century politics mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> you know That's great but in America liberal means You know Franklin Roosevelt It means something very different So they, there were all of these different efforts To reform the Democratic Party In the 70s, 80s and 90s right. And they all said the same thing Which is you have to turn away from unions You have to turn your back On the legacy of Roosevelt and the New Deal and you have to become the you know, party of the information age. Uh, and they also called these guys Atari Democrats. Uh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, yeah, it's an awful term. But um, they sort of then yielded to the Democratic Leadership Council, which was a different uh, conservative Democrat group. And uh, that Bill Clinton was the leader of that and the rest is history. But there were a whole series of these reform efforts. I mean, you call it reform. Basically, they wanted to they wanted the Democratic Party to move way to the right, and they they got their way. I mean, they succeeded. Yeah. So, I mean, I've only known the uh, new Democrats. Uh, what, that's, what the, the, that's what the Democratic Leadership Council called. They're gone now; they don't exist anymore. But that's their legacy lives on in a hundred different ways, and one of them is that term, the new yeah. Democrats. So, but what
2: are what is the the New Deal Democrats, and why? Why did they want to reform away from it? Why was well, that not the, working for
3: the them? The New Deal the New Deal, that's that's the welfare state. Yeah. So that's the legacy of Roosevelt, you know, a lot of government uh as uh, first of all, the safety net. Second of all, government doing lots of hiring. Third of all, government regul you know, when there's, when there's slack in the, in the labor market, the government picks it up by, with something like the WPA, mm-hmm. you know, hires people to go, uh, build highways or something like that. By the way, weirdly, Trump is talking about that now. Right. I mean, it's such a crazy time <laughs> we're living in. World. But the, also the idea that the government has to take a uh, strong interventionist regulatory role in the economy. So all the great regulatory agencies, uh, can be traced back to the New Deal and uh, other things too, like antitrust enforcement, all this stuff. And the Democrats turned away from all of that. All the things that I just mentioned, they, they've turned away from. But, um, but why? <laughs> because they don't believe in it, they're different people. Look, the the the, the broader story that I'm uh, telling in *Listen Liberal* is that the Democrats are, and this is uh, this is the sort of the essential insight of the book is that the Democrats are a class party in a 19th century way. They are a party that answers to a particular social class that's made up of this social class that sees this social class as the winners of history, mm-hmm. you know, as, as God's chosen group. Uh, it's just that that social class is not the working class. Mm-hmm. it might once it was once that in say the 30s 40s 50s 60s uh, today it's the professional class that's who the democrats look to that's that's who they are uh, you look at at the you know the professional class the uh, affluent white collar highly educated uh, you know uh, professional class people with advanced degrees people who work on wall street people who work in silicon valley you know, we're here in a college town. Hillary did very, very well in college towns. They, you know, mm-hmm. they the Democrats nowadays tend to get wiped out in the countryside. You know, right. among the people yeah. that used to be Democrats, little but spots they do. Of blue <laughs> yes, little spots of blue, and it's always the big cities and the college towns, and that's always that's what they get. You know, yeah, and that that's who they are. Though they are the party of the professional class, and once you understand that, everything else follows from that and you can you can understand everything they do why they do it why they uh, you know treat different groups the way they do like why for example Barack Obama was so what's the word kind uh to Wall Street so considerate to mm. the guys on Wall Street and why he just could not could not get interested in working class issues. Uh, organized labor, you know, had all of these concerns that they would come to him with and he would just blow them off. And sometimes just in these sort of uh, incredible oversights. Like organized labor is you understand is one of the uh, biggest donors to the Democratic Party and has traditionally been one of the biggest Supports of the Democratic Party, and here he is getting Obamacare done. And they come to him and they're like, you know, we've negotiated all of these health care plans with our uh, with with employers over yeah. the years, and you know, it's a great achievement of ours. You know, we'd like uh-huh. to keep them. This and what and we he's do. like, and he's like, yeah, and he's like, oh, I, I forgot about that. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was <laughs> talking to the insurance company. Yeah, sometimes. yeah, sorry, I was too busy trying to make big pharma happy right. because you know that's the creative class over here, that's the future, and that's I really innovation. care about them. Yeah. yeah.
2: I read What's the Matter with Kansas uh, and c- kind of how waging the culture wars from the right was a way of capturing regular people yeah. that weren't being represented economically by Democrats anymore. So yeah, just yeah, going to the yeah, social yeah. issues. Yeah.
3: And look what happened.
2: Yeah. That was 12 years ago. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and it seems like this one, this book is, is describing how waging it from the left, uh, the professional, generally socially liberal classes yeah. captured the party and – wrestled it away from ordinary people and yeah
3: yes there's a the history goes way back but uh uh you know on that on how they wrestled it away but uh but you i mean you've put your finger on a really important point okay so the, the, i wrote about the working class leaving the democrats and going to the republicans 12 years ago they have no excuse for not understanding this i think you know and for not seeing that this is happening i the democrats just never cease to amaze me it's like how can they not see a guy like trump on the horizon you know Uh and uh uh but yeah the the story so this so listen liberal is the is the sequel to that it's the flip side of that it's about how the democrats uh lost these people you know the republicans lured them away yes but the democrats also lost them i mean the Two things. One is <laughs> one can't happen without the other, mm-hmm. and uh, it it started back in um, the Vietnam era. You know when organized labor had, by and large, supported the Vietnam War, or supported President Johnson anyway. Mm-hmm. You know they thought they were doing their patriotic duty, and uh, the Democratic Party after the sixty eight convention decided to reform themselves and the, the the one of the reforms that they a lot of the reforms they did were very healthy and very smart but one of the things they did was to remove labor from its structural position in the party because of this because of vietnam mm-hmm. and if you these people wrote about this they wrote about this decision they were very open about it there's nothing secret about everything i've i've written in listen liberal uh and they said you know we're we, we liberalism should no longer be a movement of, you know, Franklin Roosevelt's legatees. The, uh, it should no longer be about the New Deal and the working class. It should mm-hmm. be about these enlightened kids on the college campuses, the ones who are, you know, who are out there protesting, the smart ones. You remember this is the age of Aquarius. There was yeah. all of this kind yeah. of, um, the worship of the, yeah but but yeah. sure but, but, it, but it wasn't the hippies though it was it was older people who loved the hippies that's always the uh. creepy thing <laughs> by the way this is a theme that's in uh, other books of mine my very first book which came out in the 90s is called the conquest of cool and oh. it's about how the advertising industry was absolutely infatuated with the youth culture in the 60s uh. well so were the democrats and i mean the people in charge the mm-hmm. grown-ups in charge of the party absolutely infatuated with them and uh you know they thought that. They this was that this was this new era of enlightenment was coming, and you needed to identify with this new enlightened group and not this old, you know, uh, of these working class people who, mm-hmm. you know, who, you know, were so ugly, supported Vietnam, you know, have yeah, have some ugly personal views, yeah, them. yeah, and uh, and that was the beginning of the change, and it's actually not hard to, I mean. I'm not unsympathetic to that. I mean, I'm making fun of them here. Right. But, <laughs> you know, the Vietnam War was a terrible thing and I totally understand, uh, you know, that. And also inequality. So that decision, by the way, when they made that decision in the 70s – and by the way, and it kept – it. you don't make a decision like that just at one sitting. Right. It, this fight went on for decades. But as they made that decision to turn away from working people, they basically – set the country on the course towards inequality that it's on now. That is where, you know, Reagan helps out, of course, uh, Carter helps out, Clinton, all the Mm -hmm. politics, yes, but the ideological direction was set in the early 1970s. Now, the funny thing is, they had no idea that that's what they were doing. No idea. There was this, this was the, the most equal time in American history when blue collar people lived next door to white collar people and there was not this huge gap, you know? No one thought that by making this choice, they were sending us on the, on the road back to the 19th century. That that would have never occurred to anyone at the time. Because inequality wasn't it wasn't even on the it, policy agenda for n- no one Democrats even talked about it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's they talked about like racial inequality and things like that, but right. not this huge the gap between rich and poor that we're seeing, or not rich and poor, but between the rich and everybody else. Yeah. You know, the ninety nine percent that that did not exist in those days. Yes,
0: and it was the great middle class society. It's time for another break. I'm Doug Storm. We're listening to The Age of Aquarius by the Fifth Dimension in honor of the hippie generation that gave us free love, tie-dye, and a modern Democratic Party that eschewed New Deal ideas and also recently lost the White House to a demagogic game show host. More Interchange with guest Thomas Frank after this. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today, assistant producer Rob Schoon is speaking with Thomas Frank, author most recently of *Listen Liberal* or *Whatever Happened to the Party of the People*. Frank's new book, though written and published before the November elections, turns out to be a post-mortem on the Democratic Party's failings, especially when it comes to appealing to the people that used to be its base, the working class. Up next the off-kilter solidarity of the modern left a professional class solidarity between policy experts and the wealthy industry leaders they're supposed to regulate and the meritocratic justification for inequality that diminishes chances for any other kind of solidarity
2: so so there's the really cool young people that are smart go to college They're like Bill Clinton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And and they're they're brought up, you know, through the party leadership and, and they're becoming the the people that make the decisions on how we're gonna govern, who we're going to try to appeal to. Uh and they grew up through a system of meritocracy. Yeah. Uh can you describe kind of how yeah, how mer- that changes the is, minds of someone you know, what's so bad about the, going through right, but, school? Well, well of
3: course, of course. <laughs> meritocracy is sort of the philosophy of 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 the of this country and it's also the philosophy of the Democratic Party. And it's you know, the idea that the that the people Well, it has many components, okay? Mm-hmm. The the most the, the one that's probably least offensive is the idea that that talented people should be in charge. It's like, yeah they should mm-hmm. i i yeah. completely agree with that you know no argument for me on that but then you 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 extend the this idea a little bit further And it's, it's the, you know, it holds that the people on top in our society are up there because they deserve to be up there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they, uh, it also, and then the sort of democratic version, the professional class version of meritocracy holds that every, in life, everybody gets what they deserve and what they deserve is defined by how they did in school. Which is kind of a, a, a crazy, uh, notion when you think about it. It's not about what you do. It's mm-hmm. not about your works. It's about your, you know, your grades. Yeah. And how you did on the SAT. What and schools you got into also. Exactly. And forward. that's, by the way, for these people, that's always the most important category. It's not really what you did in college. It's where you, where you went, oh. where, where you got in. And this is the, your classic East Coast meritocratic worldview. And it's, uh, by and large associated with the Democratic Party. Now, the reason it's, um, it has a lot of problems. Meritocracy is a v- extremely flawed, <laughs> you know, doctrine. It's not much of a utopia. <laughs> Just for starters, this is not a way of dealing with, uh, of of taking on inequality. This is a way of rationalizing inequality. You know, you say you you look at anybody, somebody that you know, these people who are complaining about their uh, mid- the middle class crumbling, and you say, well, it's your own damn fault. You didn't go to college, right? You know, you, or maybe you did, but you studied the wrong subject you went to the wrong school you mm-hmm. needed to go to a really good school Now, obviously this is a doctrine that there is no solution for inequality for, you know it's just every man for himself you know every man for himself with an sat what about more, <laughs> everybody yeah. gets to take what the sat that's the answer to inequality have. yeah well, yeah. well uh, look i'm in favor of education i uh, you know the I, I went to school for 25 years mm-hmm. the, but uh you know i got a phd i'm a member of this class that yeah. i'm criticizing Meritocracy is, uh, oh, well, I'll tell you a little anecdote. So I got a PhD in history in 1994. I got out of graduate school and discovered that, uh, it was no longer possible for people like me to become tenured professors or tenure track professors.
2: That was, Which that was option. getting a job in the field that you trained for.
3: Right. You could get a job, but it was as an adjunct teacher. Okay. And you taught, you, you worked really hard and you made very, very, very little money. Okay. It was, this is the, the whole work you know, uh work arrangements for historians and for a lot of other disciplines, all the humanities had been reorganized, the labor had been casualized mm-hmm. and um it had it had gone from being a, a you know, something we all looked up to our professors and we wanted to be that to being this like uh, uh, a little better than working in a fast food restaurant. Actually probably not. You probably make less as a college instructor, an adjunct than if you worked full time in a wow. fast food restaurant. Um I I'm in fact, I'm pretty sure that that's the case. But, uh, here's the thing. When this happened, and this is no secret, there's been hundreds of articles written about this. I've written them. Lots of people have written them. Um, this is no secret. And there still are, you know, we're here in a college town. You know this. There are still professors who hold a lot of power within the university. Mm-hmm. Tenured professors. They still exist. And they can see what's going on with, uh, their students, their former graduate students. They, they know yeah. what's happened. How do you think they feel about it? Do you think they care? Well, they're, they're okay. Yeah, they're okay. They don't give a damn. I'm here to tell you they are, you know, the, the, the the tenured professors, there are good ones here and there who, who Mm -hmm. care deeply and are, are horrified at what's happening to their disciplines. Yeah. The ones that study inequality. Sure. But yeah, yeah, right. But by and large, they don't care. There is no solidarity in a meritocracy. It's every man for himself. And when, and when something terrible like that happens to you, they are always, they always find a way to blame it on the individual. Always. There is no solidarity in a meritocracy. And you find this across the board. And it's also, well, we can get into this more. Meritocracy and professionalism lead to all of these bad uh, decisions by the people on top. Professions are very insular. They keep out, uh, heterodox opinion. Uh, and you wind up with a situation like poor Barack Obama becoming president and saying, "I'm going to hire the smartest people there are," and he gets Larry Summers, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, president of Harvard, the smartest economist of his generation, and they, you know, uh, uh, and look at Wall Street—the bonuses. I mean, it's all nothing happened. Right? Thanks, Mr. Summers. Thanks, Mr. Geithner. Well, you had, know, these are the the best and the brightest. <laughs> he had a good resume. <laughs> yeah.
2: You make arguments about these. Insular experts taking over the government under Democrats, uh, spe- especially Barack Obama. Um, that was something I was originally kind of excited about with. Barack Obama here's a guy who's oh, an yeah. intellectual oh, me and he too. talks to I, us. Like no, I was I
3: was so excited when he became president. Yeah. Yeah, that's like he's he's my guy. I he had been a but, professor at the University of Chicago. I had met him at a house party there in Hyde Park. Yeah. And uh yeah, I was like I was one of these guys that was like crazy enthusiastic about him. You know, this is finally one of my people is going to be president and he's going to, you know, he's going to bring in the smartest people and he's going to show you what what uh what brains and learning can do.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, you know, the opposite. Of, we're looking at George Bush, you know, hacks and cronies, cronies and hacks. Right. You know, it's just like the biggest, you know, botch of all time. And yeah. here comes Barack Obama, this brilliant man with a, you know, incredible orator, this ability to explain complex ideas. Wow. Yes. So I was, I was excited. But, but what's wrong with having a bunch of smart people running? Well, like we learned, things. didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you put them in there and, uh, and they, uh, they continued the policies of Bush in the most important question before the nation, which is what to do about Wall Street. Mm. Um, they continued the policies of Bush basically without any change for the first couple of years. Um, the bailouts kept coming. They didn't fire any of the management of the Wall Street banks. They didn't break up any of the banks, by the way, which they richly deserved. Mm-hmm. You know, something like Citibank. They didn't put any of the banks out of business. By the way, we put banks out of business in America every day. It happens all the time, especially in smaller towns, smaller cities. But um, the big investment banks, No no way was he going to do that and he didn't uh, fire the management by the way which he's entitled to do as the you know he has all the seats on the board because of the bailout uh, uh, when roosevelt was in a similar situation yes they would routinely fire the management of the banks that they bailed out constantly they always did this because they they'd been committing fraud he, obama didn't prosecute these guys by the way they prosecute little people all the time for lying on mortgage applications they're probably right. still doing it um the fbi is like hunting these people down uh, but they never touched these guys who packaged that, who knew, knowingly packaged that stuff up, up and sold it off to retirees in Germany or wherever, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> these, these incredible frauds uh, that went on on Wall Street and nobody ever paid for that. And that is – that was mind-blowing that Obama screwed that up. And by the way, if you ask me, that's the issue that – that is the issue that is more important than any other issue. Had Obama acted uh, in a, you know, a resolute – Um, had he gotten tough with Wall Street, I don't think you would have seen 2010, the Tea Party disaster Mm -hmm. year. I don't think you would have seen Trumpism. Occupy, too. Well, Occupy, right. Uh, none of this would have happened. Uh, I think that he would have turned the situation around, the economic situation around very quickly. Uh, you know, look, inequality is worse now than when Obama started. And a, that, a lot of that is because the Wall Street, because of the financialization of the economy. These people take everything. They mm-hmm. take everything. We don't make things in America anymore. It all goes to Wall Street. Obama had it within his power to change that. The country expected him to change that and he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And that failure I think is going to haunt the Democratic Party for a very long time.
2: So I saw on Frontline uh, basically a recap of the Obama administration recently. The episode where he calls in all the Wall Street you know, leaders to the White House – uh, that was the critical like, moment. Oh, they're in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> <And, laughs> yeah. And then they all they all come out, and the catchphrase is "We're all in this
3: together." Yeah, nothing <laughs> changed. That's, one of the, one of them that's said a different that, kind of solidarity. Yeah, right? that's right. Obama and the, the Treasury Department and the banks—they're all in this together. Yeah, yeah. We're going to foam the runway for the banks. Is what Tim Tim Geithner said. Foam the runway for the banks. The uh, there, yeah. And nothing changed one of the bankers said after that meeting hey this is great nothing changed yeah. but yeah that was an incredible moment they went into that meeting thinking they were they were going to get their ass kicked
2: but, but you know, professional
3: and, class solidarity right yep exactly yeah. that's so that's the so expertise in government yes where did it go wrong and you just put your finger on it that what what happens is these people at the top in the treasury department and the justice department and all the other sort of agencies that are, that were charged with doing something about this. They look at the guys on wall street and they see uh, people just like themselves. They see people, they probably know them. They probably went to college with them or graduate school. Uh, you know, and they, they look at them, they see sophisticated people, the jargon, they love that wall street jargon. You know, mm-hmm. the, it's pseudo technical jargon. These right. people are suckers for that. You know, um, it, you know, <laughs> That professionalism is largely about – well, one of the things in professionalism is making up a jargon. You have to have that. Right? You have to know the lingo. <laughs> well, yeah. because that, that excludes outsiders. That's an important uh, marker for professionalism. You've got to be able to keep out the outsiders. And so they look at Wall Street and they see a profession in full. hmm very admirable financial innovation they used to call it back in the day what the derivatives up <laughs> yes, and everything yeah the the uh, <laughs> mortgage backed securities that's financial innovation you know obama's the innovation president he's not going to punish these guys he's that's just innovation yeah. now when you lie on a mortgage uh, application that's not innovation that's something else
2: yeah that's, that's <laughs> a crime <laughs> yeah an aspect of professionalism being complexity And, and liking complexity along with jargon, but complexity is like an end in itself. Yeah, admiring
3: complexity for its own sake. Yeah, the more difficult it is. Because it makes you feel, you know, yeah, you're a complicated adult. You've read like high, you know, these high, highfalutin theories. Yeah. Yes. No, they love that. That seems uh, they, to be how Obamacare was. Uh, yes. Now. There is a – there were people uh, – this – I still can't believe this really happened. And I didn't – I don't think I mentioned it in the book but there were people in D.C. You – know, Obamacare is massively complicated to the point where it's, it's hard for people to understand it. Mm-hmm. There are people in D.C. who admired it for that reason. Which just seems so perverse, you know. Like, look how many pages
2: in this bill. <laughs> yeah.
3: Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, our, the trade deals are, are similar. They're, you know, this m- massively complicated. Some people really like that. Um, it, it's like we we're talking about the jargon. People are, uh, in the professional class tend to be real
0: suckers for jargon. It's time for another break. I'm Doug Storm and you're listening to You Think You're So Smart by Aaron Neville. You. More with Thomas Frank on the Democrats' obsession with meritocracy and expertise in the attempt to answer whatever happened to the party of the people when Interchange returns.
1: Yes, you, think you it all. Nah, City Now you tell me the no room for did my friend tell me so tell me so
0: fact welcome back this is Interchange I'm Doug Storm Tonight, assistant producer Rob Schoon speaks with Thomas Frank, best-selling author of What's the Matter with Kansas, and most recently of Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. Frank has been outlining the shift of the Democratic Party and the mainstream left in general, away from working-class issues and towards an obsession with expertise, meritocracy, and the interests of the professional class. In our last segment, we conclude our discussion on the problems with expertise, And other professional class obsessions as it relates to actually governing and return to the question of President Trump, as close to the polar opposite of expertise obsession as one could get, and whether, as the title of his book implies, liberals will listen.
3: By the way, I've been working on this critique all my life. I went to a uh, commencement ceremony at uh, some college back in the 1990s, and, um, a speaker at the commencement was defending the use of jargon, which was controversial at the time, jargon by like literary theorists. Oh. And, uh, uh, you know, we used to make fun of it and stuff like that back then. And, and she was saying in her speech that, that, they should have the right to define uh the their profession and the professional the parameters of their profession just like any other profession should in other words she said it was just basic uh professional self-interest and we should uh, stop criticizing it on those grounds which was like uh um, you know <laughs> bizarrely candid mm-hmm. and and <laughs> also self-defeating but it was a glimpse uh in the window of the professional soul jargon for jargon's sake is a good thing because it allows you to exclude the unwashed. Mm-hmm. Well, but
2: when that gets enacted into policy, that becomes yeah, of a lot more difficult because... Yeah.
3: Well, the vast majority of people are the unwashed. That's, and this is a democracy. Well, and- At the end of the day, professionalism is like, this is offensive to democratic, you know, uh, values. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of problems here. For example, I like expertise. I'm mm-hmm. really fond of expertise. I want the guy who knows how to fly the 747 to be flying the 747. That's like... That's, that's pretty uh, fundamental Step f- number for me. One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in a democracy, there also has to be a certain amount of transparency mm-hmm. and people have to, there has to be accountability.
2: Yeah. You mentioned that, um, in the, uh, in the area of finance, when things get too complex, that used to be a
3: warning signal
2: to regulators. Yes.
3: Yes. This is a really interesting story. I'm glad you brought that up. So when I do my uh, journalism for newspapers and stuff, one of my sources was a banking regulator back in the 80s. And he had a hand in – um prosecuting a whole bunch of SNL executives back in the 80s after the SNL scandal. And you know, after that was the sort of the uh that was a a glimpse of the financial crisis. Uh and it was very very similar, but in that case, we prosecuted those bankers. People went to jail. Those banks went out of business, you know. Uh they did it right that time around. And anyhow, he was one of the guys that did it right. He helped he had a hand in prosecuting these guys. Anyhow, I was talking to him about all this stuff and he said In his day, when bank regulators would see undue financial complexity, Mm -hmm. they'd say, aha, the bankers are up to something. This is fraud. You know, this is a red flag. They're up to something. Let's look a little closer at that. Mm -hmm. And today, you know, the Obama team, when they see complexity, they don't say that. You know what they say? Sophistication. (laughs) That is so so sophisticated. It's admirable.
2: Yeah, it must be good because there's yeah, so much so going on there. Yeah.
3: The creative class, don't you love to see them in action? Mm.
2: <laughs> I also think I'm a member of the creative class.
3: No, we class, all are. But... I know, of course. I know. It's a problem. Yeah, but it's class solidarity. It's basic class solidarity at the top. The guys at the top uh, are looking out for each other. And this, this is not just um, Wall Street. This is uh, the uh, Big Pharma. Mm -hmm. This is Silicon Valley. I mean, Eric Schmidt, you look at his close identification, the head of Google, Mm -hmm. his close identification with the Democratic Party or Obama hanging around with Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, how many times did he have to do (laughs) events with Mark Zuckerberg? But they, They identify with these people very profoundly. Here's what I'm getting at. Uh, They see themselves as a party of the new economy winners. And this is important because they are our left party in this stupid system that we have in this country. The binary system. The left party in our country sees itself as a party of winners, just slightly different winners than the ones that the Republicans identify with. But both are parties of winners and working class people are left to sort of fit themselves into the system in some way. I mean nobody is is really concerned with their interests. And so, you know, the a lot of the white working class this time around went with Trump. Mm. The black working class, by and large, stayed loyal to the Democrats. Them. But yeah, a lot of them didn't show up. Yeah, The same binary system we
2: have, the experts that are... Love the other experts that are innovating and uh, yeah. moving fast – move fast and break things yeah. is uh, Yeah, and they, they think that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, so do that in the
3: economy. <laughs> that's fine too. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and by the way, so th- there's this incredible solidarity among these people at the top. But remember what I just said. There's zero solidarity with the adjuncts. Yeah. With the people down below, with the working class people. Anybody Zero. working their way up. Yeah, that's like or... there's no sympathy for them. That's, you know, you're on your own. You needed to go to Harvard. You didn't understand that. Oh, too bad. So you have a government of experts that are, uh, you know, that love the
2: industries that they're supposed to be regulating on the left. Uh, now we don't have so much expertise as we have uh, blatant corruption, frightening
3: <laughs> incompetence. <laughs> yes. So years ago, the book before this one was called The Wrecking Crew. Actually, it was two ago. And it was about the Bush administration and, uh, what it looks, you know, why the Republicans bring these people into government who have no idea what they're doing, how, why they just loot the place. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the market, you know, but look at, I mean, Trump is a perfect illustration. I mean, I, I, I need to stop uh, talking about this because I just sound like I'm congratulating myself and that's not what I mean to do. But it's, it, Trump is like a, a I mean, you can't make this guy up, you know, but he should be a character in one of my books, you know, it's, it's the The wrecking crew. of the wrecking crew is here, man, they're back and they are, they are swinging the hammer more violently than ever, you know? Okay. So what's,
2: what's the answer for the Democrats and for anybody that is sympathetic to the idea that we should have some sort of cross class solidarity, um, maybe help people that don't have, you know, can't go to a nice Ivy league school you know, what, what do we, well, is Clinton still around? It's kind of weird. She's no, she just is. Been she kind is. Of and,
3: and, and, you know, fate is playing tricks on us by, uh you know, they both lost. They both won <laughs> and they both lost, <laughs> you know, Trump got the electoral college and Clinton got the popular vote. And uh that's going to make it very difficult, you know, for people who are seeking clarity in this situation. But I'm, I'm telling you, Trump, uh, Trump may screw up. Trump may get impeached. Trump, uh, anything could happen with Trump. Trumpism is here to stay. The Republican Party has learned, you know, after struggling all these years with Mitt Romney and John McCain, whatever, they have learned how to beat the Democrats. And it's Trumpism. Trump had the, you know, Trump is screwed up in a million ways, but he showed them the magic formula. How so what, you do. What is that magic uh, formula? Uh, nationalist populism. And, uh, well he got it from marine le pen this is this yeah. is all over this is happening well i don't know if he did or not i don't know where he got it but she's doing the same <laughs> I don't, thing in don't france know where he this got is anything he got, yeah, exactly but. exactly it's but it's happening all over the western world this mm-hmm. this same uh sort of idea is is ascendant and it has shown the the republicans how to win and they're not going to back off from a winning strategy and next time it's going to be in the hands of someone who's not a buffoon like a, a ted cruz or Marco Rubio, these are real politicians. They know you don't insult – you don't go down the list of inth- of ethnic groups insulting them like Trump did and you don't brag about groping women like Trump did. You know, mm-hmm. Trump I, – I, I still can't believe that he won just because of all those screw-ups and scandals that he had. Well, the next Republican isn't going to do that. They're smarter. Than, they're or if smarter they, if they, than they that. do insult people, it'll be very targeted and yeah, that's right. They'll, they'll have, they'll have they, exactly they'll have you know the advertising agency will have told them to do it, you right. know, or something yeah. like that. But uh, listen, so long story short, the Democrats have to learn how to deal with Trumpism, and just saying, oh, you know, we were cheated by the Russians, and let us try again with the exact same pr- people and the exact same ideas, and, and 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 we'll do a little better messaging. or something and we'll win next time. No. They, there needs to be a complete overhaul of the Democratic Party. I mean it's not just the president. Mm-hmm. They are wiped out in Congress. They are wiped out in state legislatures across the country. They're, they are in a state of defeat that is the worst – well, it's the worst in my lifetime uh, for the Democratic Party. It's the worst historically going back to the 1920s they haven't been this weak since the 1920s this is extremely bad and they need to sit down and have a long look in the mirror and decide you know sort of revisit all the decisions that they made going back to the 1970s i mean they need to think this thing over and and basically reverse course um but they're not going to do that I was going to ask. I mean, you know, the the title is "Listen, Liberal." Yeah, Do you they're think not. They're no, listen. <laughs> no, they're not. Well, look, I'm going around the country now. I'm going to all these midwestern uh, places because these are places that went for Trump, but also this is my home region, and uh, they aren't listening in Washington. Mm-hmm. They aren't listening in Washington, and so I am trying to talk to you know people who aren't. Part of that click. There's, this is the only way to go. No, they're not listening. They, they've had. They actually have had. You know, I say they need to do postmortems and stuff. They've had a bunch of postmortems. I am never invited. Uh, they are not listening. This is a message they do not want to hear. Party insider postmortems. Yeah, correct. they're not interested in the. You know, looking at the long history of how they got here and how they screwed up. They don't want to. You know,
2: what do you what do you think to possibly their response to your argument, saying you're pointing out the cracks in our foundation? but Trump's president and we do have all this yeah.
3: insanity going on and the house is yeah. on fire yeah no, oh no no of course we we we've got to do something about that but uh, there has to be accountability i mean uh <laughs> That's something that's supposed to be something that professionals believe in, but by the way, they never actually hold themselves accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're forever failing upwards. This is one of the things in professional uh, circles. You know, they until never until you reach a point of total <laughs>
2: confidence. Yeah, well, they're at that point. Yeah,
3: uh, and it's I mean, no, we need accountability with these with the, the Democratic Party because they're going to go back out. There. If they if we just let them continue, they'll go back back out there and run somebody else from the Clinton faction. I mean, this is just going to continue there. You know what their strategy is? They only have one strategy. Wait for Trump to screw up, you know, and, mm-hmm. so, and look, so you can get them. Yeah. And then then you'll get then you'll become popular again. And, 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 you know, the pendulum will swing your way and you don't have to do anything differently. And that is their strategy. And uh, that might work. You know, he's he's so unpopular right now. Right. And, uh, you know, people are, are, are so furious at him and people are organizing by the millions all across the country mm-hmm. uh, determined to do something about this. And that is great. That is so hopeful and that is healthy. But the leadership of the party has to change.
0: That's it for Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to The Who, Eminence Front. Thanks to Thomas Frank for visiting our studios to talk with assistant producer Rob Schoon about the shift of the Democratic Party away from the liberalism of FDR to the neoliberalism of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. A shift away from the party of the working class and a government focusing on the welfare of the worker to a party of professional class interests and a government serving financialization and free trade, a unifying theme for both political parties next time on Interchange reinventing radicalism what happened to the American left after the sixties this is the question L.A. Kaufman seeks to answer in her book direct action protest and the reinvention of American radicalism the book examines how movements from act up to occupy wall street to black lives matter have used disruptive tactics to catalyze change against long odds creating a new kind of decentralized and multivocal radical politics in the process but to what effect When has direct action made an enormous, undeniable difference? And what subtle but positive changes have been brought about, at least in part, by nonviolent direct action? Reinventing Radicalism, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and Jennifer Brooks is board engineer. Joe Crawford is our executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by The Jazz Menagerie, coming up on your community radio station, WFHB. Now more necessary than ever.